I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, Chicago Cubs chairman Tom Ricketts sits down to discuss his many careers and how his entrepreneurial spirit led not just to the winning bid for the Cubs, but the founding of major companies in the finance and trade sectors. Tom shares the lessons he learned from his father about mixing business with family, how he juggles multiple business ventures simultaneously, the evolution of the Cubs in Wrigley Field, and more. Hi, Tom. Margaret, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Where are you today? I'm sitting in my office at Wrigley. Very nice. I see a lot of cool stuff behind you. What's the stuffed animal? Uh, Well, after we won the World Series, a friend of mine thought it'd be appropriate to to commemorate the end of the goat curse by giving Ah. me a a stuffed goat head. And it's, um, it's kind of funny. And the little plaque at the bottom says, strategic plan one, goat curse zero. So it's kind of a fun thing to have in the office. That's great. I should have just put two and two together and figured that out. I don't know why I did not figure that out. That's really fun. Um, So on this podcast, we're going to get into a lot of things. We will talk about the Cubs, but we want to talk about your whole life, not just the Cubs. So let's start at the beginning. A lot of people know, maybe not everyone knows, that you were born and raised in Omaha. Your father was the founder of Ameritrade. I have a little story. You know, we had Chuck Schwab about two years ago and you came and I think it was on a Thursday and the merger got announced that weekend. All I want to say is I will never play poker with you because you <laughs> nothing. I mean, you would not have thought there was an inkling of anything. And when it got announced that weekend, my jaw dropped. So don't ever play poker with Tom Ricketts. What was it like growing up in your family? Um, it was great. I, I was born in uh, Nebraska City, where my uh, where my parents, where my dad grew up, and near where my mom grew up. And um, we moved around a little bit as kids. Ended up, uh, like you said, living in Omaha for most of my life. And we had a great childhood. Very, um, you know, a very um, strong family. Uh, you know, great parents. Um, I have three siblings. We had a, just a really great normal childhood in Nebraska. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, that, um, that happened to us later in life, some of the successes, you know, uh, business successes, you know, came later, but, um, but as a kid, I just remember my dad just working really, really hard and, um, all of our family events. And it was just a really special, um, just a great childhood. Yeah. Anything that was unique that's had a lifelong impact on you from your childhood? Well, you know, um, I think that the if there's one thing that I carry with me every day, it's just being um, around parents that not only were great parents, but um, but my dad how hard he worked and how committed he was to uh, seeing the seeing through the success in his his companies, and um, you know, and, and just seeing the a, a true entrepreneur and um, and what it took for him to achieved the level of success he reached. And it just, it was a real um, inspiration and a real role model for me. But, um, but I think that that's something that uh, probably I carry with me every day. Yeah, that's great. So you have a really politically diverse family. You have a politically prominent family. 
these last few years have been so politically divisive for some people. I know a lot of folks have navigated, have struggled navigating relationships with family members who have different viewpoints as them. So I'm curious, do the Ricketts talk politics around the dinner table and any words of wisdom you have for people right now who are really struggling trying to understand people from opposing political viewpoints, especially family members, people they're close to, how you navigate this? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I mean, it, you know, I don't, I don't think that we're that different than a lot of families, maybe a little higher profile, but I think a lot of families have, you know, different political views within them. And, but we're very, very close. We spend a lot of time together. We go on vacation together, of course, all the holidays together. From time to time, politics will come up. Um, it's not generally the number one topic, but it does come up from time to time. And, and you know, just we just kind of get through it. Everybody kind of lays out what they think. And, um, and, and, and it turns out to be pretty healthy discussion with respect to, you know, other people, you know, other, any advice, to other people, like, I, I think the only thing you can do is just, you know, be open-minded and respect everyone's opinion. People are going to come at every problem from different directions and have different assumptions and, and different, um, different belief systems. And you just have to, um, you just have to acknowledge that, um, People have different opinions than you do, and then you move on. I know. It's hard for people to do right now. It's challenging. So I've heard that your father did not want any of his children to go into the family business until they were at least 30, wanted them to make some decisions on their own. And you've obviously had a tremendously successful career on your own. Do you think that mattered? Do you think you would have gone into it if he didn't do that, or would your career trajectory have been any different? Well, aside from like one summer job when I was in college, I never really worked at Ameritrade, um, although that, you know, could have been an option at some point. But I think dad's point was, you know, go off, find yourself, find what you like to do, find what you think you're good at, and bef- before you come back and work for a family entity. And I think that, um, I mean, ultimately, you have to do something that impresses yourself and you have to do something that um, that, that gives you self-confidence. And it's it's more difficult to do, I think, if you're, um, if you're, if you have the perception or the people around you perceive that you were given something as opposed to earned it. So I think Dad's point was as simple as go off, be yourself, mm-hmm. and uh, and learn what you want to be and who you want to be, and then you can come back and and we'll see if there's a role for you in the family business. And and I I, I never went to the family business, but the um, my brother Pete did, and he was extremely important um, as a manager there and was critical to the growth and success of Ameritrade. And, and it was a great fit for him. And it just uh, never really was a great fit for me. But um, but I think that's where that all comes from. Yeah. How do you handle this with your own children? Yeah, obviously, um, we have kids that are you know becoming of age to work. And we have one that is working here in the Cubs organization. Um, ultimately, you know, we'll see if that's a, a long-term thing or if he goes back to business school and goes on to find his own, find his own way. But, um, I think that's just really important that people, you know, find out who they are and, 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 uh, get to know themselves and really understand, uh, what, what their value add is before they come to work for the family business in the long run. So you came to the University of Chicago, both to the college, and you also went to business school. You received your MBA in 1993. I have two hats right now. I'm also currently the president of the University of Chicago Alumni Board. So thank you for being an alum. What brought you to University of Chicago in Chicago? Did you have ties here? Had you been here before? What was it that drew you? Uh, no, not really any ties to Chicago. Um, the only tie we had is my older brother was already there. So that was a plus. 
but um, I applied to three schools and Chicago let me in. The um, uh, first time I saw the campus was the day I showed up freshman year. It's not like today where you visit 100 campuses and pick the one that gives you the right feel. I ended up because my dad, um, ultimately he gave us a list of uh, colleges that were known for certain studies. And Chicago was at the top on economics. And I thought that would be something that would interest me. So I just applied and uh, got in, thankfully, and and uh, made it through four uh, rough years, but then uh, went back to business school and double dipped. So it's um, it, it's a big part of who I am today. Yeah. My brothers did the same thing. They were two years apart. Did you two live together? Uh, not during college, no. No. Uh, we, lived, we lived together for a couple of years after college, but not during. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always wonder, do you think you could get in today? Things have changed so much. I, I went to University of Chicago for graduate school, but I went to University of Illinois for undergrad, you know, less rigorous, but still, I don't think I could get in today with the grades that I had. It's so different. Yeah. Things have really changed. Um, it is so competitive now. And um, yeah. I've had a few kids go through this process and uh, do I think I can get in today? Absolutely not. I know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, um, thankfully at the, that when there was a window in time where they had... Uh, had to lower their standards to accept people like me. And, and I, I and feel I the same way. I know. I'm so grateful for my undergraduate. I do wonder what, what would have happened yeah. if I went through it all again. Um, so did you always plan on staying in Chicago after graduation? What was the tipping point? I did plan on staying in Chicago because in the summers in college, I worked on the trading floors. So oh. I worked on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And um, I was planning to be a trader when I graduated. And I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of uh, alums from Chicago who were willing to hire me when I graduated, and they helped me get started and, and start my trading career. Yeah. And so I traded in the pits for several years. So I always kind of planned on staying in, in and around Chicago. Yeah. That's neat. That was um, also a different time. A lot of fun. Being yeah, that was, that was a great, that was a, socially, that was the best job on the planet because you oh, were yeah. done early in the afternoon, you hung around with a bunch of young guys and young people, like it was just... It was it was very very socially uh, socially fun, but the markets over time, like the as the markets got more electronic, and um, and just basically the your ability to make money um, just slowly shrank. It was it was good that I moved on a few years later. Yeah, so you are a prominent figure here in Chicago and nationally. You know, famously known as the owner and chairman of our beloved Chicago Cubs baseball team, which we will get to in a minute. But before that, you know, you had an illustrious and hugely impressive business career that not everyone may be aware of. And so I want to talk about it a little bit. Your list of accolades is quite long. I'll just list two: EY Entrepreneur of the Year, University of Chicago Distinguished Young Alumni Award. Uh, Wrigley's received an Architecture Award, 2016 World Cheer Series Championships. You know, we can go on and on. But you started out as an options trader. You got into the bonds business. You talked about it a little bit. What drew you to that business? Why did you want to do that? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I was drawn to it so much as I just had to get a job. You know, I finished up business school and my wife was doing her residency in Detroit. So I moved to Detroit and um, I was just looking to get into finance somewhere and came across a small company in the suburbs of Detroit that, that took me on for a few months. And I, so I got my feet wet in the bond market. And then, um, and then I left that company and moved back to Chicago and uh, basically got back into the bond business. And, and what over time happened was we basically developed a way for individual investors to have better access to corporate bonds. And I understand like 
it's not quite as interesting or uh, sexy as the Cubs stuff, but it was, it was my <laughs> life. And we got, and uh, we ultimately over time started our own, our own company and we're um, very, very successful for um, very successful to begin with. And over time it's still done well. And it's uh, still a company that I'm very proud of and I still own. Um, yeah. And it's uh, it really did change the way some of the markets worked and, and the um, I, I just, I'm just, proud that I have that on my resume. And, and I think it's a, you know, just a, a great place. So you founded in capital in your early, early thirties, you were young. Um, how did you navigate that at such an early age? You know, um, it, it just kind of happened in a sense, you know, the, the fact is that we started this way to sell corporate bonds and it became pretty sick. We were at a big bank and, we, and it became pretty successful. And, um, and then it was clear that the the, the big bank that we were working with were working at was going to take that product away from us and give it to some other people at their bank. So, um, so rather than just seeing it dissolve or seeing it taken away from us, we quit and started in capital. And I think that uh, you know having a dad who was an entrepreneur gave me a lot of confidence that we would be able to, to make this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time was 1999, so anything with a little bit of technology behind it was. Uh, was uh, interesting to the markets, so we had to because we had to go out and get funding for the company. Yeah. Ultimate, ultimately, um, I took an investment from Bank of America to uh, to getting capital started and created a partnership that lasted for a long time with uh, with, with B of A. Um, but you know, I just think in general it was just the confidence that I had seeing my dad do it, and I think um, business school helped a little bit because I did take a class where I had like the, the outline from the entrepreneurial class I took five years earlier. I used that to write our business <laughs> plan. And, and, um, you know, it, it was, it wasn't easy, but it, and it took about a year to get going, but ultimately we got back in the market and had great success. Yeah. A lot of entrepreneurs have tremendous lessons that they learn starting their businesses. Do you have anything that, uh, was really critical that you've taken with you? Anything you would have done differently? Well, I mean, a lot of things I would have done differently. I mean, uh, if you make a lot of decisions, ultimately a lot of them are ones you, uh, you know, you, you think about later and think you could probably do better at. But, um, but I think in the beginning, I, you know, it's really just about building a good team and um, really working, you know, toward a goal and working for each other. And we had a really special time. And I, um, I remember very clearly having our monthly uh, associate meeting with everybody in the company and. And there were days where I just said, this is, this really is the good old days. I know from watching my parents that there's, there's a moment in a small company where, um, where everything is working and everybody gets along well and, and you're achieving a common purpose. And, and those are great feelings. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and I just knew the, you know, that those early days were, were golden days for us. And I just reminded people to enjoy them while we could, because as you get bigger and um, have more challenges, it's not always possible to to keep that vibe forever. Yeah. So you recently merged with 280 Cap Markets to form mm-hmm. Insperix. Why was that the right decision? Did you consider selling? Um, no, I've never really considered selling. The um, uh, the CEO of Incapital, uh, a guy named John Dupre, a very an excellent manager, um, really has the vision to had the vision to just supplement our, our technology. And 280 cap markets has had great, uh, great technology for uh, for bond trading and for helping people find the right bonds. And and um, the combination 
is very powerful because we have a lot of deep relationships in the industry and 20 years of experience and we're very uh, accomplished traders of certain types of securities and and they brought in great systems and 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 expertise and types of securities that we weren't expert in so it's a great combination and i see a lot of great things happening for Inspirex over time yeah um previously you know i was a marketing person and branding so i'm always fascinated with company names Naming companies is never easy, especially now. Like so many names are taken, it is so challenging. So, uh, how'd you name Inspirex? Oh God, it's it is hard. Um, I mean, it's so much easier to name a child just because I know. You, you don't have to have the URL. Um, you know, Inspirex basically. Uh, well, In Capital was the name of our of of the firm that we contributed to the to the merger, and um, and. 280 cap markets, their their program is best X or best execution. So the the in and the X come from the companies, and then Spera just is the Latin uh, the Latin for to trust. I went I tried a bunch of different angles and a bunch of different things, but it all kind of fell together. And I think it kind of rolls off the tongue. And it and it's a, I think it's a good name. People have been pretty excited about it. So um, and you can do a lot with an X from a branding standpoint and a marketing standpoint. So uh, so Inspirex is where we landed and. Uh, it's, it's off to a great start. Yeah, that's great. So you now have at least three businesses that you're actively involved in. You have Inspirex, the Cubs, and your family office. How much time do you spend on each, or does it change at different times of year? Yeah, it kind of comes in a little bit in and out of focus the, um, on each, each of the projects. Uh, the, you know, the Cubs are um, kind of number one. And, uh, and there are times where it does get very busy here. We have a lot of different projects and things we have to handle and owners meetings and, and a lot of, um, a lot of time and energy goes into being the chairman of the Cubs, uh, with regard to in capital or in Sparex, the, uh, you know, it's, I have a couple calls a week and help out where I can, but, mm-hmm. but largely our management team does a great job there with, without a lot of input from me. And then, uh, the family office. You know, we do just have a lot of things that come up and issues that have to be managed uh, from the family standpoint, and and that's also kind of lumpy. There's t- there's days where that is a lot of work, and and several days in a row where there won't be anything for me to do. So, so effectively, I just kind of prioritize whatever um, whatever is the most important issue of the day is, and mm-hmm. and try to stay with that until it's done, and then move on to the next. And um, so, no two weeks are the same. But, but ultimately, the, I mean, the baseball team and, and what goes on here is, is the top priority. Anything else you're going to add to the portfolio? <laughs> I think I got enough on my plate for the moment. Uh, I don't know, you know cupcake, we, <laughs> ice cream company, you know. You know, well, you know, the, obviously the, um, we have along with just, you know, we have the team, but we also have the real estate around the ballpark. We have a, um, a real estate company that's helping some other teams design areas around their ballparks. Oh, neat! Uh, obviously, we have the uh, we have the, the, the television network. So right. um, there's there's a lot of businesses underneath the Cubs umbrella or or associated with the Cubs that that, um, that I don't have active day to day management of, but I try to stay on top of and help where I can. So you have a lot going on. You're not going to yep, get another enough. side gig. Yeah. Enough. I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. 
For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So was it always a dream of yours to own a professional sports team, specifically a baseball team, and then even more specifically this baseball team? Well, as a kid, I loved baseball. Uh, I grew up in Omaha. Um, the Omaha Royals are the AAA club of the Kansas City Royals. So um, kind of was, you know, cheered for a lot of the teams of the day that, you know, there were some pretty good Yankee teams and Reds teams and those kind of things. But but I was kind of a Royals Royals fan. I liked the Cubs, but I um, I didn't know that much about the Cubs as a kid. And then moved here for college. And like a lot of people, that 84 Cubs team really um, – really was an inflection point in the history of the team. It was such a compelling, exciting team that had a chance to break the curse, so to speak. And, and, um, and then my first baseball game ever was here at Wrigley Field. So first, first major league baseball game. So I, I kind of got hooked in and, um, we have a lot of fans that get hooked in that way, but, um, you know, with respect to owning the team, I ended up like, like I said, I love baseball as a kid Faded away a little bit for a while, but then um, when I was on the trading floor, I got into fantasy baseball and you know doing the doing the fantasy leagues and and started reading all the Bill James. Uh, Bill James was um, uh, was a a guy who just looked at statistics differently to try to understand the value of certain situations in baseball and certain players in baseball history and started reading all the Bill James stuff and really got addicted to the to the um, to the numbers behind the game and uh, and just really got, got into, um, baseball even deeper. And when I actually, when I applied to business school on my business school essay, the question, what is your dream job? And uh, I said, owning a major league baseball team. And, uh, so I always kind of, yeah. So I always kind of had it in the back of my head. And, um, I mean, we never, at the time that I wrote that, I never dreamed that would there, there'd ever be the resources to have that opportunity. But obviously, um, years later, um, we, we had a chance and, and, and it really, and from the family standpoint, it really wasn't about buying a baseball team or buying a sports team. It was really all about the Cubs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, um, I met my wife in the bleachers, my brothers and sisters and I, brother and sister and I would be at a lot of, a lot of games. My brother Pete would sleep out to uh, get us tickets for the weekend, the weekend games, because the, there was a couple of years where you could only buy bleacher tickets at the ballpark and they went on sale in the spring and you had to be there. And, um, so yeah, it, it was, it was a team that meant a lot to us. And the thought of, you know, being part of an organization, uh, or that could, you know, save Wrigley field and, and make the team a winner was, was, um, really exciting to us. And thankfully, um, we achieved those goals. So what is that process like? Like, How early did it start? What did you have to, I know we could talk about this for an hour. So just hitting the highlights, going to, pulling it together to win that bid. Yeah. Buying the team was really, really a long and uh, arduous process. They started, I think it was maybe opening day of 97 or something like that, where they, um, where they put the team officially for sale. But, but I was watching the Tribune company that owned the team before us. And and the Tribune was um, was struggling, obviously, with um, newspapers as their primary business. They were they were their revenue was flagging a bit, and they were looking for strategic partners. And I just 
said to my family at one point, you know, I got a feeling the team's going to be for sale. Like, because why would they keep the team? It's not a core asset and they're going to need cash. And so, um, so prop to the family on that. We hired our bankers. We actually hired our, 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 um, the, the, you know, our financial advisors, but also our, our communications advisors and our PR people, even before the team was officially for sale. And then the team came for sale at the beginning of the, the next season. Um, we got our application in. And then we waited. I think the, the, the Tribune was trying a bunch of different uh, ways to, um, to like, you know, get the park paid for by the state and a few other things. So then it just dragged on for a while. And then they had a couple rounds of bidding. Uh, I think there were 12 bidders in the first round. And that would have been uh, July of uh, 98. And then in, in fall of in that fall, the, um, they got down to three bidders. And then we were announced as the winner of those three bidders in January of 99. And then we spent from January of 99 to October of 99 closing on the deal, which is super complicated because the capital markets at that time were falling apart. It was very, very difficult to, um, to work with the banks. They weren't sure what, what they could loan and when and what terms. And then during that process, the Tribune went bankrupt. So we had to wait for bankruptcy court approval, which, uh, which added a couple months onto the process. But, but ultimately, I think it was just a matter of sticking to it and um, just keeping your eyes on the horizon and just solving problems as they, as they came up. And, and we, we grounded out and thank, thankfully ended up on top with that one. So what are the best and worst parts of owning a team with your whole family? Well, the best part's easy. Uh, we're just here together a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we've had some pretty deep playoff runs, including obviously 2016 when we won the World Series. And, and just being all together at every game, that's, that's really incredible. Um, you know, I was on a panel years ago with the, uh, the gentleman who owns the Boston Bruins, and, and he said the best part about owning a hockey team was he gets to see every one of his grandchildren at every playoff game. And, um, you know, and, and that's something that, that, uh, that we really treasure and, and sports teams are great for that. I mean, you, they're, they're really well, uh, well designed for long-term family owners like ourselves. But that's the best part. I mean, I think the worst part is, um, I mean, the, the profile and notoriety that goes along with it. I, I feel like some days that's just not a fair thing to do to other members of the family, particularly the kids. Um, you know, I, I know that when we do something that's unpopular, sometimes you have to make hard decisions. Um, when my daughter tells me I'm trending, I know that, uh, that I'm having a bad day. Um, you know, it's just, and it, it, you know, it's, um, but it's a real trade-off, you know, obviously there's, there's so many great days and, um, so many uh, great things about it and, and wouldn't trade those experiences for anything in the world. But uh, by the same token, um, you know, that, that public profile, particularly in today's world, um, you know, the social media world and uh, just the way people write about other people, you know, it, it, it can be tough on, yeah. on the family. So here's an example of a big decision. We're recording about three weeks after you made, you know, just a few trades. <laughs> Yep. Someone told me, or I think you told me that someone called it the red wedding, which I could not have thought of a better metaphor because it is like when your favorite characters get written off of a show and the Game of yeah. Thrones was just notorious for that. You know, it was always your uh, most beloved characters. So I'm sure there are people who are still crying, you know, across the city. So let's get into it. 
Um, well, I mean, I mean, first of all, like to be clear, like I don't, I don't make these trades. I've never made a baseball trade. The baseball guys are smart. They know what they're doing. And I think, I think Jed is one of the best in the game. And I think he had a, a really a, a great week. Um, that said, it, it was it was difficult for everybody. I mean, ultimately, the plan as you draw it up was to try to extend a couple players, maybe move a player or two to get some young talent and try to kind of refresh the organization as you go along and, and not have um, such a, a cliff. But it just didn't work out. There were a lot of things that kind of worked against that plan. It just didn't come together. So I think playing the cards that uh, that that Jed was dealt, he he knew what he had to do. And and if you, I think if if you realize that each of those players was going to leave the organization at the end of the season, um, that we didn't have extensions with anybody, uh, it, so you have like two months left of of one of those players. Um, if you hold on to them. At the end of the year, you can make them what they call a qualifying offer. And if they refuse the qualifying offer, then they go be a free agent and you get a compensation pick, which in the case of a large market team is after the second round. So so basically like a third round pick. Um, and if we would get a third round pick for Javi or for, for Riz or for, for KB. But, you know, a third round pick in baseball doesn't really have a high expected value. Um, and so... The better, the better play, and I think Jed saw this, and I think he did the right thing, is to, is to um, see if you can't move those guys to teams that are contending at the moment. And in return for those players, we got minor league players that are young, but with a lot of, a lot of potential, a lot of upside. And now it's our mission to make those players uh, major league players and bring them up to the Cubs at some point, have them be contributors to the next championship team. So... Um, it, logically, it was what had to be done. Um, emotionally, it was very difficult. Um, I mean, I, uh, I know those I know those players well. I was at a couple of their weddings. Um, you know, I just think the world of them as as players and as people, and they represented the organization so well for so many years, and obviously, um, you know, led us to a championship. Um, that was tough, you know, and that was emotional. I, I choked up a little bit when we were going through that process a couple times, and you have to make hard decisions to get better, you know, and it's, it's not unlike what we did 10 years ago when we traded away established players to, to get some, to get some younger talent. And um, so you just, you, you just have to play the cards you're dealt. I think Judd did a great job. It's, it's, uh, it's rough. It's rough. I know it's rough on fans cause I know it's rough on me and um, you know, it didn't, uh, you know, it, it Maybe not the way we drew it up five years ago, but it was the right thing to do for the organization. And and we'll get back on our feet pretty quickly here and start building our next championship. Yep, absolutely. So the Cubs are such an anchor institution in the neighborhood, as well as the larger metropolitan city. You know, I've been your neighbor since I graduated college and I moved to Lakeview in 1995. So my husband and I did not meet at a Cubs game, but have been to more Cubs games and concerts at Wrigley than I can count. I've been a landlord to one of your star pitches. My kids' favorite parks are all Cubs-sponsored parks. They go to Blaine School, which is a Cubs-sponsored school. So we know and enjoy your neighborhood commitments really well. Your leadership has been acknowledged by all of the awards that the Cubs organizations received in developing a community and the positive impact it's created. You've done a lot. What are some of the ones you're most proud of? Um, 
Well, you know, I, I, the I think when when it's all said and done, um, you know, no matter what happens with uh, on the field as we build the next championship team, or you know, that we already won the World Series once, but we'll win it again. I know. I think that saving Wrigley Field will always be the thing I'm most proud of, but it's not just saving a building. Um, it's everything we did around the building that made it a year-round destination and a, a place for uh, and place for families. Um, you know, the 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 as you know, as a neighbor, like every morning there's something family-friendly going on 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 Gallagher Way, uh, whether it's wiggle worms, you know, little moms and tots classes or yoga or, uh, you know, Kung Fu Panda on the big screen or something like that, or just kids running around in the summer in the little pop jets or coming over to skate in the winter on the ice rink. Um, I just feel like we became a, uh, a little bit of a town square. And, um, and so it, it just, the creating a, a family atmosphere around, um, a ballpark that was cold and uh, empty on non-game and in the winter for sure, but also just on non-game days. And, and uh, I mean, really it really looked kind of like an old parking garage when it wasn't filled with people. It was just, yeah. Um, there was, the there was that car wash. I remember that, that car yeah, there was wash. No on car, wash the car wash that blew down there. Were, yeah. We've really made this a, a special place on non-game days. Yeah. So I think, you know, saving the ballpark, but also saving it in a way that was, was community friendly. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, it had been extended West. So I'm right off of Southport, as you know, and I mean, not that long ago, like 20 years ago, Southport was not that great. You know, it has also transformed tremendously. I mean, that whole, yeah, the whole we, neighborhood we, is incredible now. When I was single, we lived above the sports corner bar at Addison yeah. and Sheffield. And, um, you know, the neighborhood there back then, because we could afford it, you know, yeah. it wasn't like it was, uh, it wasn't like it is today, but I give a lot of credit to all the, I mean, obviously all the families that moved in and stayed and raised their kids and, and the neighborhood changed and, and the, the ability to, um, change with that is something that, uh, that I'm proud of. And I, I like, um, I mean, I like the fact that we've, we've, uh, you know, been here to support people that are raising their families in the city and, and in Lakeview. But today's also an exciting day. You talk about, you know, saving uh, Wrigley. You're going on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a landmark. I think it happened earlier, but there's a big unveiling today. What's going on? Well, we had it scheduled for last year. Um, at the, at, you know, we worked, we worked with the National Park Service to become a, a, a national historic landmark. Uh, we we had it scheduled for last year, but obviously since we, there was, we were at the height of the COVID. Um, crisis, we couldn't bring people here. Right. So we we put it off until today, and uh, it's gonna you know it's gonna be a, a nice event. The commissioner of baseball is in town, a few other people. It's really uh, acknowledging the work of all the uh, all the just everyone that played a hand and played a part in 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 saving this uh, this great ballpark. Um, you know, we'll have. The architects and the and the the builders and the tradesmen and um, everyone who stepped up and did their best because it was it was quite a project. I mean, a series of um, uh, you know a series of years where you couldn't get into the park until baseball was done. And several of those years, we played baseball till the end of October. So or through October. So it was um, 
it was tough and it was, they created a lot of challenges and uh, everybody worked hard to overcome those challenges and we got to the finish line. And so today we're kind of doing a, a rededication, which will be nice. Oh, that's really great. I'll have to walk over and take a look. You've also done a lot for food insecurity, Lakeview Pantry, especially during the pandemic. Why did that become so important for the Cubs to do? Well, I think in the beginning of the of when, when COVID really hit everyone in that that March April timeframe, everybody was looking to do something. Uh, you know, we gave we gave checks to some of the early COVID funds and relief funds, and uh, that the city and the state set up. And but we're also looking to do something that would be more um, just something else can be just be more be more help. And uh, the Lakeview Pantry was at the time just over um, overburdened with the amount of people that were were in need. And, um, and fortunately, uh, they reached out and it worked out that they could use Wrigley Field and turn it into the biggest food pantry in the state for a period of time. And, um, and, and that was really great. And then, of course, later, um, we used the, the offices here to be um, a vaccine distribution center and vaccinated 50,000 people here. So, um, you know, it was, uh, I'm, we're glad that we could help out. You know, we also did a lot of other things during the during the height of the crisis, bringing lunches and um, helped arrange for um, other types of things to support our hospitals. Um, so we're very, you know, proud that we um, were able to step up. And I give a lot of credit to our team here and to the people at Cubs Charities who really leaned into the issues that COVID created for our city and did what we could to help. Yeah. We also had the CEO of Feeding America on this podcast, and it is just tremendous, the people who stepped up during this. The number of meals that they delivered through partnerships like yours, I mean, billions, billions of meals. It's incredible. We like to wrap with some really fun rapid fire questions. Are you open to it? Yeah, why not? Yeah? Okay. We'll go fast. Don't overthink it. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Night. Favorite meal of the day? Breakfast. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Favorite emoji? Thumbs up. Is there an app on your phone you cannot live without? Oh, that's kind of embarrassing. I still play <laughs> words with friends. Uh, so I think the MLB app I check more often, but uh, so that might be two of the answers. Um, who's your most famous words with friends player? Oh, I, I play with uh, I play with one of my neighbors for like <laughs> ten years. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Last show you binged, watched, and loved. Oh, binge watched uh, Ted Lasso. Yes, isn't it so good? I know, it's such a good show. We really needed that during the pandemic. Yeah, you know that one um, that started as a commercial and that like a, like a ESPN skit, and um, when it came out last year, I. Uh, my wife was out of town. I kind of thought she wouldn't like it because I'm like, oh, it's probably a lot of soccer jokes. And I've I used to be invested in an English soccer team, and I love I love uh, I love like European football, and I watch a lot of EPL. So I thought it'd be more of an inside soccer thing. But then I started watching it, and I said to my wife, "This actually." When she got back, I'm like, "You should watch this. You're, yeah. you're gonna enjoy this." So I watched it all over again. And now uh, season two, I'm only in. It's only I think it's only been three or four episodes yeah. so far, so I can't I can't binge it all. But it's been a great show. I know. So the guy who plays the assistant coach, uh, I I was looking them up and learning more about him. So he grew up in Wrigleyville and he went to school there. I want to know where he went to school. I wonder if he went to Blaine or where he went. Yeah, I know he's a Chicagoan. Yeah. 
Um, what's the best thing you learned about yourself during the pandemic? About myself? Um, I think, well, the best thing about the pandemic was just having the kids home. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously it was such a tragedy for so many people around the world that, um, you know, it's hard to think of the best thing of a pandemic, but like uh, just, you know, family time was uh, was really special for us. And um, as I think a lot of parents know, as the kids get older, they're harder to, they're harder to uh, keep them around you. And, uh, but it, it was, it was really a great experience from, uh, from a family standpoint. Yeah. Um, despite the, um, obviously the, the tragedy that it was to so many others. Yeah. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Favorite season? Fall. Favorite stadium snack? Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. I like the, uh, hot dogs with, uh, the grilled hot dogs, the grilled onions. That's all I got. So, Tom, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Margaret. It was really nice to talk to you, and uh, congrats on all your success with the Executives Club, and um, I'm sure we'll see you soon. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.